So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 36. I hope I didn't uh, give anybody a heart attack by saying we were going to do two chapters today. Sometimes you get lucky, you know. But anyway, I encourage you to, hey, you know what? Bring up, sometimes we're going to go fast. Today, there, there's a lot to uh, ground to cover. We're going to go fast. Bring a, a pad of paper and a pencil so you can make notes. Um, you know, if you're writing notes, you retain 50% more information than just hearing. So I encourage you. Anyway, uh, Genesis chapter 36. Uh, what we have here is the genealogy of Esau, right? This chapter uh, gives us the account on how Esau ended up in Mount Seir, right? And we're going to read over and over again through this that Esau is the father of the Edomites because there wasn't room for Jacob and Esau in the land. Esau went into the Mount uh, Seir area. And that's important because we're going to read about the Edomites throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And we're going to see them as the perennial enemies of the children of Israel. And it's important to keep that in our mind. This chapter shows us that Esau is the father of the Edomites. And actually, it's not only in the New Testament we see that the enemy of the children of Israel, but extends, it extends into the New Testament to a man who was an Edomite. Does anybody know who I'm referring to? An Edomite in the New Testament, an enemy of the people of Israel? Okay, it's Herod the Great. Herod the Great was um, an Edomian. He was a descendant of Edom, right, of the Edomites. And he was the guy that had all the babies from two years old and younger killed at the time of Jesus' birth. He was an Edomite. And we also are going to see in this chapter the beginnings of the Amalekites. Now, the Edomites and the Amalekites, they were perennial enemies of Israel. And remember Saul, he was told to wipe out the Amalekites, but he failed to obey the Lord completely, right? He didn't kill Agag. He didn't wipe out the Amalekites. And he ultimately died by the hand of an Amalekite, interestingly enough. And then Haman came along. And Haman, he was an Amalekite. He tried to exterminate the, the people of Israel, right? The Jewish people. And we see that in the book of Ruth. Then the last thing before we get into the study uh, is sometimes we have a tendency to look at genealogies as boring. And let's just skip over it. It's so boring. But actually, we should be grateful for them because it, it's the proof that the Bible's not a book of mythology. I mean, um, it's not full of fables. It's not just some myth, myth that, that somebody would like us to believe. Mytho mythological characters, they do not have genealogies. So then these chapters, which can seem boring to many, they're actually a blessing to us. Right? They provide for us proof that the Bible's made up of real historical figures, not characters you know, that were just made up in the mind of some fanciful fiction writer. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. So there must be a greater purpose 
for this chapter, uh, something here uh, the Lord wants us to see and he wants us to understand. So we get into it. Verse 1 uh, says, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada and the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. So as we look at this list of Esau's wives, I want to point out to you, because people are so quick to, you know, contradiction, you can't trust the Bible. You know, the, this list is different than the list that's given to us in Genesis 26 and 28. And, you know, it's not uncommon during these days that people had two names. And so the reason for the difference here may be that Jacob had recorded the names of uh, these women that were used earlier on in their lives when he recorded uh, his generations, right? The generations of his family. And when Esau wrote down his generations, he recorded the names of these women uh, that they were known by later on in life. Well, whatever the reason, we see here in verse 21, a whole Obama was a Horite lineage and is one of, uh, and is a, one of the daughters of the sons of Seir, right? And so what that means is that she's from the bloodline of the Anakin, okay? She must have been, if you think back and remember where the giants came from, I mean, they were good-looking, big people. She must have been a very large, just beautiful woman. And we see that she had more sons than Esau's other two wives. So she was probably favored by Esau. Interestingly enough, Esau had all of his kids in the land of Canaan. And then later on, he took them across the Jordan into the land of Mount Seir, that area of Petra today. We're told in Deuteronomy 2, 12, and also verses 20 through 22, that Esau wipes out the Horites, the Zanzuman and the Anakim, who were, in, who were giants in the land in that area of Petra. Jacob, on the other hand, he had all but one of his sons uh, outside of the promised land, and he moves into the promised land. It's just an interesting observation. Anyway, verse 2, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemith. Cracks me up every time I read that name. Like nobody names their girl Basemith anymore. You know, there's Basemith, Ishmael's daughter, sister uh, Nabajoth. So you might remember Esau's pagan's wife. They were a problem for uh, his mom and dad, Rebecca and Isaac. So he took Basemith as his wife, thinking that would please him because he was a, uh, she was a daughter of Ishmael, a descendant of Abraham. Verse 4. And now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemith bore Reuel. And Aholabama bore uh, Jeush, Jalalim, Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where uh, they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. 
So God has blessed Esau and Jacob so much, right? They're, they're so wealthy. Esau, and they can't live together. They got too much stuff. So Esau crosses the Jordan, goes to that area of Mount Seir, again, which is the area of Petra. And eventually he wipes out all those people, right? Verse 8, Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. And here you have it again. Esau is Edom, right? So what we learn here is that the Edomites, they came from a commingling of the Horites, the Canaanites, and the Ishmaelites, those three primarily. Verse 9, and this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites, and Mount Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basemith, the wife of Esau. And the sons of uh, Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. Now, Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. And these are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. Uh, these were the sons of Bathsmith, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion. Uh, and she bore to Esau, Jeush, ja, Ja'alam, and Korah. So from verses 15 now to verse 19, we're not going to read through this. I'll leave you to uh, read through it to yourself. But from verses 15 to 19, we have the chiefs of Edom. And it says, verse 15, these were the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn uh, son of Esau was chief Timnah, chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, and it continues on, and we'll skip down to verse 19. These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs. Now, from verse 20 to verse 30, we have the sons of Seir, and we'll skip down to verse 31. Again, I'll just leave you to read that. Verse 31 through 39, we have the kings of Edom. And verse 31 says, now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. And so what we see here is that they were established. These, these people were established. Their kings were established in that area of the land before Israel had kings. And if you skip down now to verse 40, Verses 40 through 43 are the chiefs of Esau. A lot of these names are just repeated. It's interesting that uh, in verse 41, well, we'll read it, verse 40. And these were the, the names of the chief of Esau according to the families and their places by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief uh, Jatheth, Chief Aholibama. Uh, it seems like, you know, one of Esau's wife was a chief. Okay. You know, equal opportunity and everything like that. You see it right there in Genesis. Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timman, Chief Miz, Mibzar, Chief uh, Magdiel, Chief Aram. These were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling places in the lands of their possessions. Esau was the father of the Edomites. And so this chapter lets us know that the Edomites and the Malachites 
which were perennial enemies of Israel, this chapter lets us know where they came from. So we're just not left in the dark. Now, verse 30, uh, chapter 37, as we continue on, we're going to begin to look at the life of Joseph. He's the main character that is developed in the book of Genesis. He's one of the sons of Jacob, as you know, but he's not from the Messianic line. And that's important. He's not from the tribe of Judah, something that we need to understand. One quarter of the book of Genesis is dedicated to Joseph, 13 chapters. And this section of scripture is, very, is a very specific account of Joseph's life and God's call upon his life. It's a specific account of his faithfulness to that call and what it cost him to be faithful to that call and how God uses him to be an avenue of salvation for the people of Israel. But there's a bigger picture that we need to see too, okay? This whole section that has to do with Joseph is but only part of the narrative. And if you dig into it, we'll just get started and we'll get to that point. Verse one, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob, right? So this section is supremely about God's plan regarding how he's going to bless the world through the bloodline of Jacob. Jacob being one of the three great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the greatest blessing from that bloodline, of course, is Jesus Christ, who came into the world as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The seed of Abraham that's promised. He's the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And there are over a hundred types of Jesus Christ or a hundred foreshadowings that we're going to see in the life of Joseph. Joseph's life is an Old Testament portrait of Jesus Christ. With almost every single verse, God is adding another brushstroke to this painting. It's the most marvelous and striking portraits of Jesus in the Old Testament. And we'll uh, look at those that are in this chapter at the end of the study. But you know what? First, the historical account in regards to this chapter. And again, as we begin this chapter, I think we need to keep in mind that from the start of Genesis 37 to the point where Joseph is reunited with his dad, man, it's a period of 22 years, right? Man, what it explains for us in this big, bigger picture is how Jacob and his sons wound up in Egypt. It'll explain to us why God did that, why, why he does those, thing, those types of things, even though the promises were related to the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now, you'll remember back in Genesis chapter 15, God has already revealed to Abraham that one day his descendants would spend 400 years in a foreign land. Then God would bring them out of that foreign land and then he would take them into the land of Canaan. Now, there are three reasons, at least, three reasons for God taking Jacob's bloodline 
out of Canaan and into Egypt that they're important for us to, to understand. First, it was, it was to wait until the iniquity of the Amorites and the others that were in the land um, to become complete. God is going to discipline the pagans in the land, not because they're pagans, but because of their wickedness. And the Amorites, they were not as wicked as the others that were dwell, dwelling in the land. And so God wanted to give them time, right? He didn't want to judge them until their sin required it. So he gives them 400 years to repent. Man, you talk about patience, huh? You just talk about loving. The second reason is he wanted to protect the people of Israel. There's only about 70 males at this time when they go down to Egypt. I mean, they're, they're not even close to being a nation, right? They're hardly even a family. And it would be very, very easy for some violent tribe in the land of Canaan to rise up and just wipe out the entire family. And that type of thing wasn't heard of, unheard of before. So what God does is he takes them and puts them in Egypt to protect them. I mean, boy, again, just how wonderful is God? The third reason is God wants to develop them. God wants to, to take them from not just being just this, just this large family, right? He wants to make them into a nation. If God gave Canaan over to Jacob and his 70 males, his wife and their children, now, I mean, they couldn't even populate a small village, right? They couldn't control the land or the wild animals in the land. And they could never hope to control the sinful nations that were dwelling around them, right? So God takes them into Egypt as a family. And, uh, and when they come out in 400 years, now they're going to be this massive nation, right? Now they're going to be the nation of Israel. When they come out of Egypt, it's estimated there's somewhere between two to three million people. Well, wait a minute. If they go down to Egypt, won't the Egyptians just absorb them into their bloodline and there will no longer be any Hebrews to speak of? No. The Egyptians in that day, they were the beautiful people and they knew it too. They're like Hollywood celebrities, right? The Egyptians, they were very proud about their heritage. And if you weren't Egyptian in this time, you were nobody, right? You could easily take a person, in this case, the, the Hebrews. The Egyptians were so proud of their purity and of their race and in their separation from others, they would never marry into a foreign race. So it was a very safe place for God to put his people, culturally speaking, so that they would not be absorbed. So now the story goes to Joseph telling us how Jacob and his sons got into Egypt and God uh, uses Joseph to do that. So we continue. Verse one says, Joseph being 17 years old. And that's really important for us to note, right? We need to make a note, mental note, at least of his age. It'll help us in dating other events as we uh, look at them and the chapters that are ahead of us. So Joseph being 17 years old was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad uh, was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. 
Joseph goes to his dad and tells Jacob that the other boys, they're not doing a very good job with the flocks, right? The flocks are how the family maintained uh, their survival. I mean, families depended on these animals. And so Joseph tells his dad, you know, they're not doing a good job. And how many times have you heard right here in the Bible study a pastor or a Bible teacher say, you know, Joseph, just, he's just a tattletale. He's just a snitch. Snitches get stitches, Joe. Well, you know what? To that, I would say, read the rest of uh, Joseph's life. Read his story. And then tell me that that's the conclusion that you come away with, that he's just a snitch, that he's just a tattletale. I don't think so. His brothers are doing wrong. They're, ha they're, they're handling the flocks poorly, which places the family in danger. So Joseph rightly goes to his father and tells him what's going on. Every responsible leader or businessman wants to know what's going on with those whom they trust the job to. You want to know how well they're doing. You want to know if they're over their heads or if, you know, they just don't care about what it is you've given them to do. A trusted leader, uh, you know, a faithful leader, a good leader wants to know that. So Joseph is actually doing what's right here. He's being faithful to his family. And it may be that, you know, it may be very likely that his father asked him to report how things are going on down there. Later on, as we go through the law of Moses, we're going to come to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, sorry, the book of Levi. And in the law, it for Levi. <laughs> Take two. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter. <laughs> Later in the law, in the book of Levites, Leviticus. <laughs> you know what Leviticus means? Pertaining to the Levites. See, uh, that's why I mix. No, because I mix it up because I'm not clear. Later on in the law, it's forbidden to keep silent in a situation that puts other people at risk. Leviticus 5 verse 1 says, If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. So I think you could say that Joseph is bringing this report to his father. It's actually a mark of his integrity. Verse 3 says, Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was a son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. And again, you see this trait, this terrible trait of favoritism. Uh, it just continues in this family. It's been so destructive up to this point. It's going to continue to be destructive. Jacob loved Joseph more, perhaps, because he's the son of his beloved wife. It may also be because Joseph, he was just an easy kid. He was easy to love, you know? Uh, he, was, he was a good boy, and he was a godly, godly young man. And when you have a kid that's very compliant, he doesn't cause you any problems, you know, they're easier to love. But no parent should play favorites or love one a child more than the others. You know, it causes so much heartache and hurt. It's so destructive. And Jacob, of all people, should know this better than anybody else. Because remember, Rebecca loved Jacob 
Isaac loved Esau, and that tore the family apart. So Jacob should have known better. But in a demonstration of his love for Joseph above the others, he makes him this tunic of many colors. Now, there's a legitimate debate in the, in the Hebrew here. Some people like the translation, a coat of many colors. Um, and Jacob could have given him a striped coat or a coat made up of colorful patchwork. I don't know. Um, some people read it as a coat with long sleeves, big sleeves. And it's interesting. I, it's not in my notes, but I always think this verse. You, ever, you remember seeing Hamid Karzai, the president of, of Afghanistan up till 2014? He always wore this green kind of striped thing. And he had sleeves down to his, down to his knees. You know, it's that kind of idea. It was, uh, it was a, you know, something of authority. I believe that tunic is the appropriate translation. And we'll, and we'll see reasons why I believe that uh, soon. But suffice it to say, it distinguished Joseph above the other boys. Right? And it was an outward expression that he was loved more than the other boys. Listen, if you got 12 kids... You buy 12 brightly covered coat, colored coats, or you don't buy any, especially if the other kids are willing to kill the one that got the, got the you know, daddy's favorite coat, you know. Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him, you know. What they probably recognize, even though Joseph, he's at the end of the line in regards to inheritance, in regards to the birthright, in regards to the blessing of the family, becoming the leader of the family when his dad is dead. But Joseph is daddy's favorite. And the other guys interpret this as he's just taking cuts into the front of the line. No one liked it very much because it spoke about inheritance. Right? His brothers hated him. And anytime Joseph tried to talk to his brothers, they could not speak peaceably to him, it says. And you have to remember, Joseph is only 17 years old. Right? It's hard for him to process all this stuff. He doesn't understand. Now, Joseph had a dream and he told his brothers and they hated him even more. And if things could get any worse, you know, Joseph has a dream and they hated him even, even more. Now they really hate him. Now they really, really hate him. So he said to them, please hear this dream, which I, I've dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf rose arose and also stood upright and indeed your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf you know it's an interesting dream first because it involves wheat right later on joseph is going to manage this this grain supply for the nation of israel but joseph says hey guys i had a dream you know what and in it your sheaves bowed down to to my sheaf imagine that i mean how cool do you think that is Right? And the brothers knew ex immediately what that dream meant. It meant that Joseph was going to become the preeminent brother and they would bow before him. And they hated him for it. Verse 8, and his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his, uh, his dreams and his words. The dream clearly communicated that Joseph would be that 
preeminent son in the future. And his brothers uh, now really hate him because of his dream and all that he had to say. Some people see Joseph here as showing off, again, rubbing his brother's nose in this, you know, in these dreams. But again, I don't see it that way. He's just 17 years old. He's not like kids today that are 17. He doesn't have the keys to dad's car. He's living in this sheltered family culture. And he's excited about the fact that God has spoken to him. He's excited that God has given this glimpse of his future. And I think that there's zero guile within his heart at this time or any time. He's just a good guy. And I think if God gave that dream to any of the other brothers and they told that to Joseph, I think Joseph wouldn't be threatened by it at all. I think he would be happy for them. I think that he would be excited for them. He's just excited about the whole situation. And what we need to learn from this is this, though. God can give us, give us dreams and visions, right, that are just for us. Okay, I've learned, I've learned that the hard way. Sometimes God will say something to you. You know, he'll, he'll share something with you, his heart for the future. And it's not to be shared with anybody else. It's just to be personal, at least until that time that he gives the okay. We assume that when God gives us a dream or a vision, especially when it's favorable to us, that we should share it with others, right? But others aren't always happy to hear what God is doing in our lives or showing us um, at that time. God knew what was coming in Joseph's life. And there are some really hard things that are coming into Joseph's life. And God knows that Joseph is going to need some very direct and powerful communication from heaven to keep him encouraged in light of what he's going to be facing. You know, it, it makes me think of the apostle Paul, right? The church at Corinth was treating Paul terribly, right? They were giving him a hard time. And Paul, and he reveals to them a vision that he had of heaven 14 years earlier. Paul sat on that vision for 14 years until the Holy Spirit gave him permission, gave him the go-ahead to share it with others. Joseph here, he just shares it with everyone. And again, I don't find any fault in him for doing that. Verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. So Joseph is either a little slow or he's just without guile in the matter. And we're going to find out that Joseph, he's not a stupid kid. He's a sharp kid. He's really smart. He's just, but he's just a kid. And he's a sweet kid at that. Says, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Hey, guys, it's not only you that's bowing down to me. It's mom and dad that are bowing down to me. How cool is that? Verse 10, so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. 
And I think Jacob knows that he has a pretty special kid in Joseph. So he keeps the issue in his mind. He also knows, based on his own life, that God's not adverse to skip an entire uh, birth order to accomplish God's divine plans. So it wouldn't surprise, so it shouldn't at least surprise Jacob at all that God would do such a thing for Joseph. Now, this is the turning point in the story. Okay? From verses 1 to 11, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's all fun, right? It's fun to get dreams. It's really cool to have visions from God in regards to what God wants to do in our lives. It's fun to get those types of revelations from God. You know, it's wonderful. It's encouraging. It strengthens our faith. But afterwards, the hard part begins. And it's easy to get a revelation the hard part is the preparation that takes place to prepare us for, God want, for what God wants to do in our lives. God gives Joseph these dreams and these visions for his life because God knows Joseph is heading into a 13-year period of development of his character to prepare him for what God wants to do through him. There's something way harder than the preparation that God invests in our lives, no matter how hard it gets, right? It's going to get really hard for Joseph too. When you look how God prepares Joseph to become the second most powerful man in the world, how God prepared him uh, so he's able to keep his head on straight when that happens, you realize that there's something harder than the preparation of our character for that position, right? The harder thing is to be elevated into that position without the preparation. That's the much harder thing. There needs to be preparation before presentation if we're going to be used powerfully by our God. Remember that if God is stretching you, if he's uh, sometimes, you know, you feel like he's just pulling you in all directions and you just feel like, God, you know, why has it got to be so hard? I, I just can't take anymore. It's just too much for me. You know, there's a day that's coming when you'll be very thankful for how hard God pulled you and stretched you. You'll be thankful for the difficult experiences that God has brought you through to prepare you for his plan in your life. Because the worst thing is being in a position that is demanding and you have no foundation and no idea what to do or not having the character or the depth of character to handle that which he's put you in the middle of. God never puts us in the middle of a situation that he has not prepared us to be successful in, right? But it can be really hard. Joseph is headed into a 13-year trial. And personally, I don't like to put 13 years in trial even in the same sentence. You know what? I don't even like the word weeks in trials to be in the same sentence. 
I mean, for me personally, you know, if I have to, I can wrap my mind around maybe two or three weeks of trials. Okay, Lord. But 13 years, 13 years, God can do that. Don't give up on the dreams and the visions God has given you for your lives. Don't give up because God is faithful to bring those things to pass, right? It could take years, but things have a way of turning around in a, in a minute in regards to the things God has promised us. We need to understand that God doesn't, uh, God isn't uh, pressed for time. I mean, he's not frantically looking at his watch. You know, he's not in a hurry. God is very patient in regards to the work he's doing in our lives. But now verse 12, that preparation begins. It says, then his brothers went to feed their flock in Shechem. Shechem's about 50 miles away from Hebron. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Maybe a little uh, too much time has gone by. You know, they, uh, Jacob hasn't heard from the boys. He doesn't know what's going on, how they're doing. You know, there's been no word. So he gets a little bit worried. And then he says, verse 14, then he says to him, to, uh, to Joseph, please go and see that it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out into the valley of Hebron out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? And he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They've departed from here, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Dothan. Dothan's another 50 miles away. And when he saw, and when they saw him afar off, how do you think they recognized Joseph afar off? That was that darn coat. You know what? <laughs> I mean, it was probably like one of those safety vests as construction workers wear, bright orange, yellow reflective stripes on it or something like that. I don't know. But uh, now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. I mean, they see Joseph coming. And you know what? They conspire to kill him. They're not interested in beating him up. They don't care to punch out his lights. They want to kill him. Verse 19, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. And they want to kill him because, because of his dreams. They won't call Joseph by his name. They hate him so much. They call him a, a dreamer. It's all because of his dreams. And verse 20 Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what becomes of his dreams. I mean, they're planning Joseph's death. I mean, he's just walking towards him. You know, he's wearing his coat. And as far as he's concerned, he's just going to go see his big brothers. Verse 21 says, but Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said to them, let us not kill him. Reuben steps in to deliver Joseph from certain death. Verse 22. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, 
So Reuben suggests this plan. He says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into this pit and leave him there to die. But in his heart, he's saying uh, this in hopes that he might deliver him out of their hands, it says, and bring him back to his father. Reuben's the good guy in this story. He's the good guy in this situation, trying to save Joseph from his brothers. Verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic. The tunic of many colors uh, was on him. I mean, you just see how much they hate him. I mean, they just, they just can't wait to get Joseph out of that tunic, man. Get him out of that coat. And they took him, verse 34, and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So this pit, it's an empty cistern. It's used for storing water, holding water. And you might think that Joseph, I mean, he just kind of like, you know, the he just kind of puts up with it. He doesn't offer much of a fight. And he just gets thrown into the pit. But later on, in Genesis 42, 21, the brothers, because of their guilty conscience, they're going to recount this whole incident. And they recount how Joseph cried out for mercy. I mean, he was saying something like, I can't believe you guys are doing this. Please, please, someone help me. Don't do this. Why are you guys doing this? I mean, he's pleading for his life. He's pleading uh, for them to have mercy on him, to have mercy and spare his life. I mean, he's in anguish. 17. Verse 25. And they sat down and ate a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked. There was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So all of this is happening along this major trade route from Arabia going down to Egypt. Verse 36, so, Joseph, so Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? I mean, Judah says, you know, let's not kill him. Let's let somebody else kill, kill him. Let somebody else do the dirty work for us. He says in verse 27, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let, our hands be, uh, and let not our hand be upon him. For he's our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Judah says, This is just as effective a way to bring his dreams to an end. Let's sell him as a slave. We'll make a few bucks. And that'll be the end of his dreams and visions. I mean, it's a win-win for everybody. Well, yeah, not Joseph, you know. Does God make the wrath of men praise him or what? Right? Joseph is going to get this free ride down to Egypt where God wants him to be all along. And these guys think they're ruining God's plan for Joseph's life. God always wins. His plans always come to pass. Verse 28, Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph out and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. Right? Reuben, he's away you know, for a while while all this was going on, somebody needs to be out there taking care of the sheep. So maybe it was Reuben's turn to be out there. He's taking care of the sheep while they're planning their brother's death. 
And it says, And Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. Reuben comes back, and he finds out that Joseph's um, been sold into Egypt, sold to a bunch of Ishmaelites, taking him to Egypt, where he's going to be sold as a slave. And Reuben, he tears his clothes, which is a, it's an it's a expression of profound grief and mourning. And he returned to his brothers, verse 30, and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? Reuben's the oldest brother, right? He's the head of the boys, so he's going to have to uh, give an answer to dad. And at this point, they can't run after the Ishmaelites and say, Hey, guys, wait a minute. You know, we made a mistake, right? We'll give you 25 shekels if you give our brother back. No, these guys aren't giving him back. Joseph is lost. He's gone for good. And Reuben is saying to his brothers, what have you guys done? Didn't you guys ever think about the fact that we're going to have to be going home at some point? We're going to have to tell dad what happened to Joseph? Verse 31, so they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they sent the tunic of men in colors, and they brought it to their father and said, hey, we found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? I mean, the boys, they're playing it cool here, right? Hey, dad, we found this. I mean, by any chance, uh, do you recognize it? I mean, we don't, we don't have much of an idea of whose it may be. Maybe it's that brightly colored coat you gave Joseph. I mean, we never really, you know, took much notice of it. You know, I mean, we can't tell now. It's all covered in blood, right? And uh, verse 33 says that Jacob recognized it and said, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn in pieces. So Jacob comes to the conclusion that the boys actually wanted him to come to. And for 22 years, they're going to let their dad believe that his favorite son is dead when he's not dead at all. I mean, speak about unspeakable cruelty to do that to a parent. And the only thing that's worse than what they're doing to Jacob is Jacob has to feel, I'm the one that sent him. Right? If I never sent him to Shechem, Joseph would still be alive today. And for 22 years, Jacob is going to feel responsible for the death of his son Joseph. And these boys, so hardened, so cold-hearted, they're going to let their dad live with that in order to cover up their sin. In verse 34, Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his sons many days. And notice that. I mean, you talk about nerve. Uh, verse 35, And all his sons, I mean, the ten brothers, right? Ten brothers of Joseph. I don't believe Benjamin's involved here at all. The ten brothers and all his daughters arose to try to comfort him. Talk about nerve. But he refused to be comforted. How could those boys live with themselves seeing what they were doing to their dad? I mean, talk about heartless. I mean, it's beyond heartless. And he, Jacob, said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. 
Thus, his father wept for him. And what Jacob is saying is, I will never recover from this. Verse 36. Now the Midianites had sold him to eat in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. So Joseph is now in Egypt. He's sold as a slave. He's sold to a very, very powerful man in Pharaoh's government, kind of an overseer of the prisons, right? The prison system in Egypt. So that's really the historical behind uh, this chapter. Let's close now in just looking at the pictures of Jesus found in these chapters. And you're going to want to write uh, these references down. Verse 1 and 2, the very first thing that we notice as we look at the foreshadowings of Jesus in this chapter, in this life of Joseph, is his name. The name of Joseph, we've learned before, means added. It points to the fact that through faith in Jesus Christ, our names are added to the kingdom of God. Our names are added to the book of the life. Later, we're going to see Pharaoh gives Joseph another name. Genesis 41, 5. Pharaoh calls him Zaphnath Paneah, which means, it means revealer of secrets. And that's who Jesus is. He's the one who reveals the Father to us. John 1, 18. John says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father, he has declared or revealed him. Jesus reveals the father to us. That's why Jesus came, that God would no longer be a mystery to us. Joseph is also a shepherd. He's feeding the flock. Jesus said that he was the good shepherd. John chapter 10 is all about Jesus being the good shepherd. Another thing we see is that Joseph testifies to his brothers that his brothers' works were evil. John 7, 7, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Then verse 3, as a type of Christ, we're told in this verse that the Father loves the Son. There's a few times in the New Testament where God speaks from heaven and each time he says something like, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, whom I love. Also, the coat of many colors uh, that Joseph wore represented the authority of his father. Matthew 28, 18 says, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Just as Joseph had his father's authority, so Jesus was given all authority in heaven on earth by his father. Continuing with the picture of Jesus in this chapter, verses 4 through 8, we read three different times that uh, his brothers hated Joseph. The New Testament shows us that the Jews hated Jesus. And there are a lot of cross-references uh, to that. But John 15, 18 through 25, I won't read all of it, but uh, Jesus says, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hate, hated you. Genesis 37, 8, we read specifically that Joseph's brothers hated him for his words. 
And that's exactly what we read in the New Testament. The Jews hated Jesus for his words. John 15, or sorry, John 5, 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. John 10, Jesus said, I and the father are one. And it was for those words that the Jews picked up stones to stone him. We see in verse 9 and 10, Joseph speaks a second time of his future exaltation. Two times Joseph speaks about his future exaltation, and it just infuriated his brothers. The second time he speaks of it, his dad rebukes him. Jesus said, Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, he tears his clothes. Those around Jesus, they spat on him and they beat him, striking him with their hands. And they said that he was worthy of death. They were infuriated because Jesus spoke to them of his future exaltation. In verse 11, we see Joseph's brothers envied him, right? When you come to the New Testament, you see that the Jews envied Jesus. That's why they delivered him to Pilate, Matthew 27, 18 says. Joseph was hated and envied by his brothers, just as Jesus was hated and envied by his brothers, the Jews. In verse 12 through 14, we see the prophetic picture of Joseph who was sent to his brothers by his father. Shechem is a type of the world in the scriptures, right? It was a type of the world because it was wicked. It was violent. It was sexual. Remember, Dinah was raped there in Shechem. And interestingly enough, Hebron, it means fellowship. So Joseph leaves this place of fellowship with his father, being sent by his father to Shechem, a type of the world where he was hated by his brothers. They would conspire against him to put him to death. And ultimately, Joseph would be rejected by his brothers as the one who would rule over him. I mean, does it sound vaguely familiar at all? I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? We read two times in these verses that Jacob sent his son, just as the father sent Jesus into the world. Jesus left heaven, a place of fellowship with the father, sent by his father to the world that, that he would be, uh, and, he, and he would be rejected and betrayed and conspired against to be put to death. In verse 13, Jacob calls his sons to go. Joseph responds by saying, here I am, here I am. Hebrews 10, 17, speaking of the Messiah, speaking out uh, about Jesus, it says, then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. That's an NIV translation. Notice in verse 13 and 14 that Joseph came seeking his brother's well-being. Jesus came into the world seeking our well-being. John 3, 
17, Jesus said, For God did not send me into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be, uh, the world through him might be saved. Verses 15 and 16, we see Joseph seeking his brothers. And it speaks of Jesus coming to seek and save the lost. But more specifically, Jesus first came to his brother and the Jews. And we read in the Gospels, uh, we read that in the Gospels, Matthew 15, 24, Jesus said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. John 1, 11 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. As you go further in the New Testament, Romans 1, 16, 17, it says that Jesus came to the Jew first and then the gospel went into the world. And if you look at verse 17, Joseph went to Shechem and was told that his brothers were in Dothan, Dothan, 50 miles away. And Joseph patiently and untiringly sought his brothers. So too, Jesus pursued his brothers, the Jews, patiently and untiringly, even weeping over them because of the rejection of him. And we can take that picture, that picture even a step further. I mean, just think about how patiently and untiringly that Jesus has pursued you. You know, how many years did he tirelessly in, in his patient love uh, pursue you, willing to nurse you in his great love? I mean, it's such a beautiful picture of Joseph doing that for his brothers, a foreshadowing of Christ doing that for us. Verse 18, they conspire against Joseph to kill him. In every gospel, there's a verse that says something to the fact that the Pharisees went out, held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Verses 19 and 20, they called Joseph a dreamer, right? They, took, uh, they looked upon Joseph's words with tremendous skepticism, and they mocked him, that dreamer. Well, you see that skepticism when you look at the New Testament. It says, as those passed by Jesus while he was hanging there on the cross, they blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders says, he saved others. Himself, he can't save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. Right? He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And that's Matthew 27, 39 through 43. That same skepticism that Joseph's brothers had was a portrait of the Savior and the skepticism that the Jewish leaders would have of Jesus. In the same way people treated Jesus, in the same way people treat Jesus today, the same way when they hear the gospel. They're skeptical and they mock. You know what? If people really believed the words of Jesus today, they would flee to him to be saved. But they... they Meet the, they meet the gospel with skepticism and mocking. 
Verse 21 and 22, we see Reuben wanted to spare the life of Joseph. And what we see here is that not all of the brothers of Joseph wanted to, to reject him or see him killed, right? And that's the picture of the Savior. Not all the Jews rejected him. Most of them did, but some became believers. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic. And when you come to the New Testament, a lot of people, I think, miss this. When you come to the New Testament and you read in John 19, 23 and 24, it says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldier, soldiers did these things. What do we see here? We see that when Jesus was crucified, they stripped him of his clothing. They cast lots for his clothing and they took his tunic. And again, what I think a lot of people miss when they read this account of the crucifixion is that Jesus was naked when he was crucified. I mean, you just talk about shame. You know how humiliating that must have been for the Son of God, God incarnate, to hang on the cross naked. You know, I said it the other day in church, um, our clothing identifies us as our, you know, it links us to our culture, right? You can go any place in the world and people see you, and yeah, they know you're an American. Your clothing, if you're an African, your clothing identifies you to that culture. If you're an American Indian, your dress identifies you with that culture. Jesus being crucified naked truly identifies him as the savior of the world, right? The savior of all cultures. Joseph didn't have a coat, didn't have a coat taken from him. It was his tunic that his brothers ripped from him, leaving him naked when they cast him into the pit. Verse 24, we read the pit that Joseph was thrown into had no water. Later on, Genesis 42, 21 again, I mentioned it before. We'll see Joseph crying out in the anguish of soul when his brothers threw Joseph into that pit. And it's a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross naked, crying out in anguish of soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out in John 19, 28, I thirst. Just as Joseph was in the pit, thirsty because there was no water, so too Jesus, thirsty with nothing to quench his thirst. It's all part of this portrait of our Savior. Verses 25 through 27, I know I'm going fast, and I know I'm, uh, I've gone over time. Thank you for your patience. But uh, verses 25 through 27, you see the hypocrisy of Joseph's brothers. They strip him naked. They throw him into this pit. And while he's crying out, they say, let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother and our flesh. Man, I got news for you guys. Your hand's already been on against him. You've thrown him into the pit and you're going to sell him as a, as a slave. So too the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. John 11, sorry, John 18, 28. They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium and it was early in the morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled that they may eat the Passover. 
They didn't want to be defiled by going into the Roman praetorium, you know, but they've already conspired against the Son of God and their accomplices in his murder. They were saying, hey, we don't want to go into a Roman building, you know, we don't want to be defiled, we, we don't want to, you know, be excluded from celebrating our religious feast. What hypocrisy. And notice also Joseph was sold by Judah for 20 pieces of silver. You know, I know you know that Jesus was sold by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. But did you know the Old Testament Hebrew word Judah in the Greek is Judas? Did you know that? Of all the brothers that would betray and sell Joseph, it was Judah. Uh, yeah, it's because God wants to paint this picture for us. Then you come to verses 29 through 32, and it's here we see an innocent goat dying in the place of Joseph. And it's a picture of the gospel where innocent blood is shed in our place. Jesus being a substitutionary sacrifice. And we read the blood was presented to the father. It was presented to Jacob. And we see the brothers coming up with this lie. Hey, do you recognize this tuna? I mean, we don't really know whose it is, right? In the New Testament, we also see Jews coming up with another lie after Jesus' resurrection. They said to tell that anybody asked, tell that the disciples stole him in the night while the Roman guards were sleeping. And then finally, verses 33 through 36, we're left with the father. Jacob weeping over the horrible death of his son. This chapter ends with the father weeping over this brutal death that his son has died and the horrible beast that has devoured him. And it's the picture of the father in heaven weeping over the horrible death of his son there on the cross and the horrible demonic hordes that were there. Psalm 22, 12 through 13. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Psalm 22, 1 through 21 is all about Jesus hanging on the cross. The demonic hordes surrounding Jesus there while he hung on the cross, paying for our sin. While the father weeps over the son. It shows us how much the father loves the son. And we see in the New Testament how much the Father loves each one of us because the Father allowed His Son to die that horrible death that we might be saved. Jesus dying broke the Father's heart. But that's how much the Father loves each one of us. Right? Jesus was sent by the Father to die for our sins as a demonstration of His great love for us, it says in Romans. It's unbelievable. And you know what? You, 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 when you understand it, you just can't cry out, just thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know what? If you're watching online, if you happen to be here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't know the love of God, you know what? You can, right? All you need to do is come to him and ask him to forgive you, turn from your sins, turn towards him, give him your life. And you give your life to the one who's willing to die for you to keep you from hell. You know, willing to pay the debt that our sin deserves. And if you'll do that, if you'll bow your knee and pray to him, he'll cleanse you, he'll wash you, and he'll forgive you of all your sins. Make you a new creation, 
a new slate to live for him. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for this chapter, Lord, and the picture that it paints, the understanding of your great love for us. Lord, it's a, it's a sad, horrible chapter just to see what's going on, how his brothers hated Joseph, how they despised him, how they wanted to kill him. Lord, but it's a beautiful reminder also of the gospel, how you love each one of us. Lord, help us never to forget your great love towards us, Lord. Help us never forget what it cost you that we might be saved. Lord, I just pray for anybody that doesn't know you that may be watching now, Lord, that they would just understand your love and they would turn their heart towards you and ask for forgiveness for their sins. Tell you that they're sorry for them and in the sincerity of their heart, ask you to come into your, their life and wash them and cleanse them that they believe in the resurrection. And again, in the sincerity of their heart, they're willing to give their life to you. But I just pray you would meet them and encourage them to do that. And they would understand that that's a prayer that you welcome. And there's a work that you have in mind for, for them as they give their life to you. It's a glorious thing that you want to do in their life. Lord, and for each one of us, Lord, we just give you praise. We give you glory. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.